welcome everybody to the Center for the Study of World Religions. It's a pleasure to have you here. Uh, this is uh, our welcome to our next installment of the Religion and Nature series. Uh, we're very glad to have Professor Dugley here, Professor John Dugley, uh, talk about something very new to his. Uh, Professor Dugley has something of this presence. He's always been something, somebody that I very much appreciated. I lose my words really in his, in his presence. Um, the Religion and Nature series uh, has had a few events. This is the first event that addresses metaphysics in general. Um, we've, we've had it from the start of September till now. Uh, it's a part of the Junior Fellowship series here at the CSWR. Uh, professor Dugley is the Associate Professor of Religious Studies at the College of the Holy Cross here in Greater Boston. Uh, his education involves an undergraduate degree at Cornell University, a master's at the G George Washington University, and a PhD at Princeton University. Professor Dugley is known for many things in Islamic studies. For one, his famed translation of the Fasus al-Hikam, the Ringstones of Wisdom. Uh, if you do, if you do that, you can pretty much do anything. Address from the, from solving the environmental crisis to just about anything else. Something that he had done in his masters. Uh, he is currently a translator and a general editor of the Study Quran, the forthcoming Study Quran. Uh, soon to be published, God willing, by Harper Collins, uh, something that's been in the making for many years, um, of Circassian descent, having grown up in the United States as well. He's been special advisor to the Royal Hashemite Court in Jordan, has done fieldwork in Turkey, and in addition to his writings on Islamic mysticism and philosophy, uh, has has hand ha, has had a hand in uh, writings on Islamic politics, some some religion and politics. His latest uh, piece, having been on uh, having been on ISIS, and a response to the Atlantic's latest article. So admirable that it was published by the Atlantic itself. Uh, I wish to invite Professor Dugley here, having seen, after having seen a lecture of his on time and on modern science, in which he questioned certain axioms of modern science from a metaphysical and a philosophical worldview, taking into consideration his uh, training in the study of the Islamic sciences. I thought it would be wonderful to have him speak on the environment in particular. Uh, and it all comes circle for me when I was a student at the Yale School of Forestry and Environmental Studies he uh, he was the person that would go and see seek uh, his uh, seek his advice for with regards to the general topic of religion and science I'd come here to Boston meet with several professors and he'd be one of them and the only person that I speak with on that very topic all of this really uh, is is re is is reason and that and much more 
to welcome Professor Dagli very warmly. Thank you, Professor, for coming. Thank you, Munjit, for that uh, very kind introduction. Uh, thank you, Professor Clooney, for hosting me here. It's a great pleasure to be here. Uh, uh, it's my first time in this really stunning uh, building uh, and uh, delivering a lecture, which uh, 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 I hope will uh, uh, kind of advance our conversation on these uh, on some of these matters. Uh, the, the title, um, I hope, its meaning that it will become clear. Uh, as I give, uh, as I kind of deliver my talk, and uh, you know, I, it, it's somewhat ambitious, but I'm hoping that uh, it'll at least raise some questions. Which perhaps, if I can't answer all of them in the talk, we can always uh, then uh, talk about uh, these matters in the discussion period. Uh, metaphysics, despite the sound of the name, is not an exploration of non-material reality or occult forces, but an investigation into questions like. What does the world consist of? What is cause and effect? What is the scope and limits of knowledge? In this sense, everyone, any conscious human being, has a metaphysics. Philosophical disputes about the validity of metaphysics, which have been a significant part of Western philosophical discourse for the last two centuries, and especially in the analytic tradition, really pertain to certain kinds of reasoning and whether these modes of, of reasoning can give us any kind of real knowledge. But one cannot say in an absolute sense that one has no metaphysics any more than one can say that one has no memory, imagination, or sentiments. Beliefs about how the world works and how we work are a part of human consciousness, even if we almost never have an articulate thought about such convictions. It's like politics. No one has no politics. Your decision to stay out of politics or simply not caring is your politics. Similarly, everyone, by virtue of being sentient human beings, has a metaphysics in that sense. My approach to the question of ecology or the environment in my talk today will remain focused on a limited set of issues. I will not be attempting any practical solutions to environmental problems or even tracing a detailed history of what has brought us to the sad situation in which we find ourselves as it concerns the natural world. Rather, I hope to meditate upon the ramifications of one basic question. What is the relationship between our metaphysics and our lived life? What I mean is the relationship between, on the one hand, the answers we give ourselves to questions such as what is reality, how do we know it, and how ought we act in it, these are a set of ideas that one might say dwell on the horizons of our minds. They are the metaphysical background of our lives. But on the other hand, we have our actual lived life, how we carry on with other people, how we walk, speak, choose, love, and hate. This is the foreground that usually takes up most of our, attempt, most of our attention, whatever our metaphysical convictions happen to be. The relationship between this foreground and background, if I can use this metaphor, is not always clear or consistent not between people and not even within the same person over time. So then, what is the relationship between what we believe in and what we do as it concerns environmental questions? Let's begin, if you'll allow me, with a thought experiment. Imagine a future where we discover a wealth of energy and useful materials on the moons of Jupiter, and we set up a space station in orbit around Jupiter that will send unmanned craft to the surface of the moon to conduct mining and to bring back materials to process. Now suppose that this space station begins small, uh, the size of a space shuttle, uh, but it is modular, so it can grow and grow like Legos. And the computer system on the station can be connected with new systems and so forth. Now suppose that as the mining operation grows and grows, the station has to grow in order to accommodate the incoming material. The computers and robotics would be so advanced that the station would be self-sustaining and self-maintaining. 
it would get its energy from the Jupiter moons and it would get raw materials from there as well. So it could fabricate and assemble spare parts and new modules as it might need. Imagine further that with the passage of time, this station grows to millions of times its original size, all the while maintaining ever-growing and ever more complex systems of software and hardware to run itself, to extract energy and material from the moons, and to export energy back to Earth. It would have enormous and complex systems for fuel delivery, manufacturing, planning, resource allocation, transportation, etc. Let's take the metaphor even further. Imagine that the station discovers a wormhole that somehow allows for a limitless stream of energy. Imagine that the number of software and hardware components and systems grow until they are equal in magnitude with the parts and connections of living organisms on Earth. A gargantuan mass of hardware and software that has an endless fuel source and now serves the needs of, let's imagine, thousands of inhabited worlds and some future out of an Isaac Asimov or Frank Herbert novel. So you have to imagine a massive machinery and software with as many parts as the number of cells and the bacteria, plants, and animals alive right now, with each part being roughly as complex as a cell and their interconnections being as numerous. This is hard to imagine, but it is a thought experiment after all. You have to imagine a teeming hive of robots as big as the sun, perhaps. Now, does this machine world, right, this planet of robots, have an ecology or an environment? Why would one care about any part of it? What should one feel about protecting the robots whose job it is, for example, to patrol the surface of the machine world looking for damage? Uh, what about the pipes or conduits that deliver energy, the ships that bring batteries charged up from the never-ending source, or the factories that turn the energy into materials? I, I think we know the answer, th th which is that most people would not feel, sentimentally you might say, morally, about the robot world the way they do about our biological world. But, th but would they be able to offer an argument as to why they did, why they did that without relying on sentiment or bare assertions? What is the real moral difference between the dry robots of our machine world and the moist robots, to borrow a turn of phrase popular among some atheist, atheist thinkers these days, that populate our world? Now keep this machine world thought experiment in mind. It's not a far-fetched notion as far as the history of science is concerned. The period we usually call the scientific revolution, and especially the early scientific revolution, might be better described as the would-be mechanistic revolution that had to settle for being a mathematical one. Luminaries of modernism like Descartes were, among other things, determined to banish invisible entities like the Aristotelian substantial forms as explanations of the natural world. In the Aristotelian and scholastic view prevalent in Europe at the time, physical objects were made up of form and matter. The matter of the bed, for example, is wood, and its form is bedness. Uh, in a different, in a different uh, respect, it was sometimes said that the soul uh, was the form of the body. The mechanical philosophy, as it came to be known, sought to explain all of nature in terms of mechanical, mechanical relationships that would be intelligible in a very specific way. That nature, the world of nature, was akin to a thing that an artisan could fashion, ex explicable in terms of mechanical forces like levers, screws, etc. Essentially, contact causation. A cat was not a cat because of some form of cat, but in the same way that the parts of a clock make a clock a clock, not owing to some invisible or intangible form. In this view of things, what we intuitively think of as the qualities of a thing, such as its being red or blue, hot or cold, were in, actuali were in actuality derived from their true qualities of purely bodily extension, which could be expressed in terms of 
mere magnitudes. Descartes took this quite literally and, for example, tried to explain magnetism as a multitude of tiny screws flying between objects and displacing air between them, creating a vacuum that drew the objects together. Descartes and others envisioned a kind of machine world not unlike the one in our thought experiment, except that the human machines also had a mind that was associated with the machine body. I'll return to the mind in a moment. The specific and narrow assumptions of the mechanical view is, must be kept in mind in order to understand why it was considered so catastrophic when Newton provided a theory of gravity without giving any mechanical explanation for it. And as we know, no one has provided one since and will never be able to. The problem with gravity for the mechanical philosophy was that it was an occult force that could not be explained in terms of the mechanical forces with which we are familiar intuitively in our experience that is unmediated by theories. The original impetus of the mechanical philosophy was not to reduce everything to mathematics, even though it was assumed that a world consisting entirely of mechanical bodies extended in three dimensions of space could be entirely explainable and expressible in quantitative terms. Rather, the central thrust of the mechanical philosophy was to assert what kind of things the world consisted of. Mathematics, for example, was not necessary to understand how a screw works or how a lever pushes an object, although their working could be expressed mathematically and also studied as such. But again, gravity uh, was an occult force that could only be understood in terms of a non-mechanical non mathematical theory. This was a violation of that mechanistic impulse. The luminaries of the scientific revolution who were ushering us out of the age of superstition and dogmatism were not interested, initially, in replacing one set of invisible entities, whether they were substantial forms or angels, with another set of invisible entities, whether it was gravity or electromagnetism. But they wanted to abolish such occult forces altogether. Newton famously said of the real cause of gravity, I feign no hypotheses. This may seem odd to us today, who view the discovery of a mathematical formalism describing the behavior of the physical world to be as good as explanations get. But that wasn't so for Newton. With the advent of Newtonian gravity, it was no longer possible that the world would be intelligible in the way that Descartes, Galileo, and Newton himself had initially hoped. In, indeed, the ambition to understand all reality in terms of common, common sense contact causation had to come to grips with the fact that Newton had irreversibly destroyed the conception of the world, that conception of the world, uh, and introduced a conception of gravity that forever eliminated the possibility of the kind of everyday mechanical interactions explaining the nature of all things. Thus, what we call usually today materialism or naturalism or reductionism is the result of what happened when the mechanical philosophy failed to account fully for natural phenomena and mathematics had to be employed to provide a formalism that filled in the gaps between sensible phenomena. But such a vision of reality can only be material or mechanical in a metaphorical sense, not literally, at least from the standards of people like Newton and uh, Descartes, because the mechanical philosophy was replaced with a mathematical philosophy possessing machine-like properties, which is not the same thing. For a long time, this mathematical philosophy was determinate. And with the advent of 20th century quantum mechanics became indeterminate and statistical. And for scientists, at least, the connection between our intuitions about the world and our mathematical descriptions of the world have been totally severed. The mathematical descriptions of quantum physics is full of paradox and metaphor. And mathematical formalism, 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 I'm sorry, has gone from the merely abstract 
like Newton's theory of gravity, to the literally unimaginable, like wave-particle duality. When the mechanical philosophy talked of corpuscles, they literally meant tiny marbles or the like. This is not so with the particle metaphor in quantum mechanics. The characteristics given to particles, parameters such as spin, are really just allegorical. They are cute names given to mathematical entities. Just look at how particles are spoken of as having flavors like charm and strange. It's a kind of poetry from a certain point of view. And by the way, this is, physicists will say as much. This is not me. I'm quoting physicists, not imputing views onto them. But the pre-mechanistic conception of nature, the one before the advent of, this, of these modern ideas, had not only abstract invisible entities, but also purpose, agents, angels, consciousness. But these were all banished from the scene for the mechanical philosophy. But they did not return with the invisible entities that would come to be called forces, fields, and particles. We don't know what these entities are other than the fact that they are quantities, have a creatively imagined similarity with sensible objects. For example, think of the word field and where it comes from. And they also have a, one of these names attached to them. In the 21st century, we are, we are not even faced with Newton's problem of a world that is partially explicable mechanically and partially through occult forces. Physics has dug deeply into the bodily world and has found no tiny corpuscles, screws, or levers. Particles are not tiny marbles. We only talk about them that way for convenience sake, the way one speaks of the rising tide of voter discontent. From the point of view of physics, it's just mathematical formalism all the way down. Imagine Newton's dismay if he had discovered not that gravity doesn't have a mechanical cause, but that nothing does, except as a rough approximation or aggregate of mathematical entities. Significantly, almost all the major figures who gave us the mechanical philosophy thought it was, that, thought it was God that made the machine. What happened after, philosophically, uh, is a complex story, but we essentially have kept the machine idea and replaced God and the angels and purpose with natural laws, forces, fields, and the like. So much for the machine. Uh, but what about the ghost in the machine, namely the soul or the mind? Long story short, it disappeared as well. Uh, let's consider where it is said we come from. There were infinite possibilities of random molecular assemblages in history. Some of these assemblages collided with other assemblages such that simil similar assemblages resulted from the complex collision. More random collisions of random assemblages happened, and somewhat more complex assemblages resulted from the collisions. We take the stuff that forms a certain patter pattern of repetition and similarity over time, and we call it life. In fact, there were all sorts of collisions and all sorts of assemblages, and analytically there is no reason to prefer one line of collisions and assemblages over another. Similarity between successive collisions is an arbitrary attribute. Others could be chosen and analyzed. In fact, the cosmos is simply a giant white noise of collisions stuff banging together from this point of view. After all, the molecules do not know the difference. They are all just rolling and bumping on their merry way, acting as no more or less than the protons, electrons, and neutrons they are. I am sure they are all, every single one of them, quite indifferent to whether they are part of a comet or Einstein's brain. Does the molecule of water act differently in a cloud than it would in my blood? It doesn't know if it is part of a complex structure and doesn't care, like a penny going from pocket to pocket. So, how do groups of molecules begin to care or to be cared about? We don't walk around most of the time thinking about ourselves this way, as molecular collisions. 
Just as religious believers do not always conduct themselves like stewards of God with immortal souls, it just shows that it is not always clear what the connection is between our answers to ultimate questions and how we are in the world. To expand upon this point, I would like to offer a comparison between how we relate to human beings and how we relate to the rest of the natural world. Usually in close human relationships, one's metaphysics does not have an immediate impact on how one treats individuals. Our sentiments in regards to human beings, especially those whom we know and with whom we are in close loving contact, are usually robust and not malleable under the influence of background metaphysical ideas, at least not in a direct way and certainly not at all times. If you, can, if you cornered an atheist, he might say that his children technically are moist robots, but he certainly won't act or think of them like that. And indeed, the way an atheist and a Muslim treat their children is probably as similar as their respective metaphysics are different. That is to say, we universally treat family members as worthy of care in themselves, not merely as means to an end. Communal life is built upon a fundamental unit, families, that treat human beings as sacred and worthy of care in a non-negotiable way. These relationships are ritualized and habitual, concrete rather than abstract. They are felt rather than thought out. We all know that it would be impossible to have a functioning society in which we all view and treat each other as means and not ends, and which is moreover determined or, or determined solely by a Kantian imperative of judging moral obligation. Rather, we it, it happens through ritualization and internalization of what it means to be good to other people. Of course, we do not relate to all people or even most people like we do to our loved ones, but we could not be a flourishing society unless the most important relationships were based on treating others as sacred objects of love. It is also crucial to keep in mind that in times past, we could not conceive that our actions could affect the well-being of someone on the other side of the world. And this conception was essentially correct. A Muslim of the 11th century did not feel responsible for the suffering of someone in Japan any more than someone today would feel responsible for the suffering of a being on a planet orbiting a distant star. In such cases, there's simply no connection, no possibility of action, no responsibility. Moral duties before the modern period were entirely towards people one knew or could touch. But today, our, our moral sphere, if I can put it that way, our sphere of action, that, 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 doma that domain in which we think we have moral obligations, has been expanded, mostly because of technology. And we feel, rightly or wrongly as the case may be, that we have responsibilities to people we will never or could never meet in person. This feeling of obligation can be seen as a kind of extension of our relationships with those close to us, although necessarily abstract and sensitive to our metaphysical worldview. Our attitudes towards people on the other side of the world are in fact highly dependent on how we articulate our beliefs about what human beings are, what our moral ob obligations consist in, and so forth. In short, the farther we move from our intimate relationships, the more dependent our attitudes become on our ideas. Something similar, I think, could be said about our relationship with the environment. Before the modern age, what human beings could nurture or destroy in the natural world was essentially coextensive with their everyday lives, the trees, rivers, and animals that were a part of their lives. Not trees in general, but specific trees. Not all rivers, but that river. You could poison a well, but you couldn't poison half the world's wells. You could cut down a tree, but you couldn't deforest half a continent. The natural world was what you could see, touch, 
smell, hear, and taste with your own body. It was not an abstraction or an extrapolation. Thus, in most religions, teachings uh, about how to deal with the natural world were generally commensurate with the actual interactions people had with nature. They did not have to grapple with the danger, well, usually, that human beings could make the earth unfit for human life, and so generally they didn't discuss these kinds of questions. But we need to remember that we are in an age in which the connections of human beings with the natural world of wild plants and animals, and even the night sky, is fast disappearing. Even for many who do not live in cities, the experience of nature is restricted largely to the products of professional landscaping. Our meat comes wrapped in plastic and styrofoam, our grass is made to look as much like carpet as possible, and we can barely see the stars. Coming back to the human plane, of course people, excuse me, of course people on the other side of the world are outside of our lived life and have to be categorized using our abstractions and our generalizations. And our moral attitudes towards them depend quite a bit upon our metaphysics, upon the answers to questions such as, what is a human being? What are my obligations? What is the good? But even here, there is some stable sense of humanity that can be the basis for empathy. If we have terrible answers to these ultimate questions, at least our ritualized and concrete sense of the human relationships we already have might save us from committing evil or at least keep the damage we do in check. But the concrete lived experience we can then we can take and extend to other human beings beyond our sensible reach does not have an analog for so many people in our times when it comes to the natural environment. What habits and relationships with animals, plants, and mountains, what rituals and feelings can we extend to cultivate a broader sense of moral disposition toward the environment as a whole? From this point of view, one's answers to ultimate questions can be even more consequential in the domain of ecology than they are in the realm of human relations. If we have bad ideas about the world of nature, what is there to keep them in check? We may not treat our neighbors like moist robots, but what's to stop us from looking at the environment as a kind of machine world? Where are the sacred objects of love in the world of nature? I have not really said much about religion yet, because I have tried to keep my focus on the very specific issue of how our metaphysics can affect our attitudes or not affect our attitudes, rather than invoke particular uh, examples of particular manifestations of metaphysics from the world's religious traditions. Uh, but it is really the religions whose view of the world actually accords with the sentiments that environmentalists often have toward the world of nature, pollution, animal welfare, and so forth. They can claim, with their mechanistic or reductionist counterparts, that they care about nature. But it is the religious believer that can also provide an account that goes beyond excuse me, naked self-interest and utilitarianism. By the way, we, and we have to distinguish between an intention and an account of that intention. Those are not the same thing. It is the religious believer who can offer an argument that the biosphere is morally and intrinsically worthy of care in a way that the machine planet is not. What can the mechanist, the follower of the mechanical philosophy, by offer, by way of explanation, other than that he feels it is different, that he is in possession of certain impulses or instincts which no one has ever doubted he possesses. Scientists and environmentalists in particular talk about purpose, meaning, beauty, and goodness all the time, 
and no one doubts that their feelings of compassion, care, responsibility, and kindness toward the world of nature are sincere, abiding, and consequential. But if such people adhere to the prevailing scientific view of the world of nature as their articulation of metaphysics, do they have a rational foundation for these attitudes? The fundamental question, perhaps, is, can we do what is right for the environment based solely upon considerations of human material interests? Is it enough to approach the natural environment as we would the mechanical systems of the machine planet? Maybe it will be enough. Perhaps we can carry on telling ourselves that the world is a giant system of incredibly complex, moist machines, moist machine systems, while at the same time following our no more noble impulses to care about other people and to be as kind as we can to animals and plants, to maintain the aesthetic qualities of nature and so forth. Perhaps there is no need to change our view of what nature is in order to pre preserve and enjoy it. Perhaps we can ignore the necessity between, perhaps we can ignore the necessity between the what, the is, and the ought, metaphysical terms, and simply act according to what feels right in a vaguely coherent way. After all, it's what most people do most of the time, whether they are religious believers or not. But I tend to think that in the case of the environment and its destruction, that human self-interest and a smattering of ecological sentiment, kindness to animals, and aesthetic needs will not be enough. Human beings must change themselves if they are to save, if they are to save themselves. And in this respect, I am in total agreement with Seyed Hussein Nasser, who has been arguing since he wrote Man in Nature in the late 60s, that the environmental crisis is at root a spiritual and intellectual crisis. To quote from his book, Religion and the Order of Nature, quote, the history of the modern world is witness to the fact that the type of man who negates the sacred or heaven in the name of being a purely earthly creature cannot live in equilibrium with the earth. It is true that the remaining traditional peoples of the world also contribute to the destruction of the environment, but their actions are usually local and most often the consequence of modern inventions and techniques of foreign origin, whereas the modernized regions of the globe are almost totally responsible for the technologies that make the destruction of nature possible on a vast scale. It is the secularized worldview that reduces nature to a purely material domain cut off from the world of the spirit to be plundered at will for what is usually called human welfare, but which really means the illusory satisfaction of a never-ending greed. There is no escaping the fact that the destruction of the natural order on the scale observable around us today was made possible by a worldview that either had denied or marginalized religion. And he goes on to say, Religious ethics, although necessary, is not sufficient. What is needed, in addition, is the reassertion of the religious understanding of the order of nature, which involves knowledge and not only ethics. A religious ethics cannot cohabit with a view of the order of nature that radically denies the very premises of religion and that claims for itself a monopoly of the knowledge of the order of nature, at least any knowledge that is significant and is accepted by society as science." End quote. So for Nasser, and I would agree, the ground must be cleared it is, precisely, uh, it is precisely through an appreciation and cultivation of metaphysics, as I defined it at the beginning of my talk, that one can clear the ground for religious people to relate to the cosmos in a way that goes beyond sentimentality and has a firm intellectual foundation. As Nasser argued, the, redu the reductionist worldview cannot cohabit with a view of the cosmos created by God, populated by angels, by souls and possessing intrinsic purpose. 
this doesn't mean that religious people cannot cohabit with secular people, but, that, but it means that the reductionist vision cannot cohabit easily in the same mind as a sacred vision of the order of nature. So this brings us back to the prevailing worldview of modern science. The materialist or naturalist or reductionist, I mean, there's different names for this, this, this point of view. The materialist reductionist philosophy is, I would argue, not a finding of modern science, but a premise of modern science. And so part of what religions can do is to properly understand the history of the philosophical ideas that dominate our conception of the order of nature and to understand how contingent and arbitrary they really are and to see how many, how many times they've morphed and changed and been subject to intellectual caprice over the centuries. They can understand that even though modern science asserts that the natural world is purely mechanical or mathematical, they can know that this assertion is really the elevation of a mode of investigation, valid on its own level, of course, to the status of a metaphysical truth. It is, an, it is one thing to study the world quantitatively or to study it as if it were a machine. But it is another thing to say that the world is only quantitative, or to say that the world is only mechanical. And in fact, the history of modern science, which of course this is not a, a, a talk uh, trying to detail that, is full of ambiguities and leaps of, uh, you might say, conceptual leaps that it's always necessary to keep in mind, which is why I spend a little bit of time discuss discussing the philosophical shifts that have brought about the reductionist worldview that dominates, uh, that dominates the scene. Um, the mechanical philosophy, that we, the one we associate with people like Descartes and Galileo and Newton himself, destroyed the traditional sacred view of the cosmos in more than one way. But then Newton's laws, Newton himself destroyed the mechanical view and ushered in a quasi-mechanistic view that was really a mathematical one. Then Newtonian mechanics was itself undone by quantum mechanics and relativity. Today, the dominant view of the world of nature that grips the popular imagination not only clashes with the religious view of nature, but also has no real basis in the history of mainstream science if it is properly understood. So if religion, if people who desire to, borrowing a, a, a phrase from Nasser, resacralize the cosmos, if they desire to engage these in important intellectual questions, they have to do so at the level of rigorous metaphysical thought. And if they do that, they can indeed open up a space for people to truly see the world of nature as a sacred reality without being haunted or uh, challenged uh, by the background idea that it is really just a world of machines. Thank you very much. Should religion wish to, religion, Christianity, Islamism, 
religion in general, wish to offer an alternative view of the universe? What, what, would, what would take us there? Um, well, I mean, each religion has its own cosm cosmology, and that's a, that's a big question in terms of explaining uh, you know, what kind of alternate vision there is. Uh, um, that would require an entire might say, series of lectures for any one of the world religions. I guess my, my, own, my own point was that uh, when you're dealing with the, the prevailing uh, popular scientific view of the world of nature, there's actually more than one problem in terms of that you have to kind of, you might say, get at to get out of the way, religious people never come to a kind of a blank slate, right? When if, you, if you're a person who's a Muslim, if you're a Muslim and you believe that God created the world and that the world is populated by angels and that things were created with a purpose and that the, the, the entities of the beings of the world glorify God and so forth and so on, um, you're, you're not able to just uh, look out, look with a, a blank slate onto the world of nature and, in a sense, try to perceive or understand or meditate upon those things. You've you've grown up and you're surrounded by a, a not just a kind of a neutral very particular positive view of what the trees are and what the sky is and so forth and so on. It's not, um, it's not it's simply a question of nature speaking for itself, but we, you know, I mean, most educated people, they grow up with a conception of the universe which is essentially like the kind I described. And uh, the Nasser quote I gave was making a point that, and it's a point I agree with, that uh, for most of the world's religions, uh, that conception of things is irreconcilable with the view of the cosmos that they possess. Right? So the question is, I, I, I sort of, I didn't use the word evolution, but I, but in a sense, when you have these kind of massive collisions of molecules over and so on, the question becomes, well, where do you fit anything in that? It seems that there's only room for the machine, right? If you kind of think of the robot planet, that kind of, maybe it's a bit of a Baroque metaphor, but I, mean, I, I, I tried to, you know, just give something, like, something concrete to think about. I think that's a real issue. It's not, it's not a, a tangential issue, but it's, not, it's also not easy to know what that effect is. Plenty of people just walk, uh, they sort of go about their lives, in a sense, believing a combination of these two things. There's lots, for example, I'm a Muslim. There's a lot of Muslims who accept modern science, while at the same time being believing Muslims. And they don't really explore, you might say, whether or not metaphysically there's a contradiction between, you might say, the mechanistic mathematical view of the world of nature and their own view of nature. And they just kind of carry on that way. Know, and, and those two things interact in, in sort of a complex way. My interest, at least in, in, in today's talk, was to say, uh, what happens when you really uh, you, you try and push as far as you can to the, into, the, into the ultimate questions and to see if these, two, if these things are reconcilable? I think it's pretty obvious that they're not reconcilable, the religious view and the metaphysical view. Then the question becomes, uh, uh, does it matter? You know, for, for, there's lots of different ways in which it doesn't matter. Example, I mentioned the example of scientists who certainly don't treat other human beings as if they were moist robots or something like that. There are scientists like Noam Chomsky, who's very clear, for example. He says, look, I believe in science. I think science is the best we've got. Uh, you're, I don't believe in religion. I think religion is irrational. But then if you ask him, well, what's the connection between your moral life and your scientific life? You know, like, so for example, he's a political dissident. He's very, people look to him not only as an intellectual but as a moral voice. And he says, look, there's no connection. You know, I mean, science says nothing about why people do good or bad things. You know, you might as well read literature. Like, don't think that somehow science is going to give an explanation as to why human beings are what they are. Now, I would say that's a very inadequate way of connecting two very important parts of human life. But he's content with it, you might say. He's sort of content with it, and that's fine. And there are many different ways in which these two relate to each other. You know, what I didn't really get into is um, 
uh, I, maybe this isn't your question, but the, I didn't get into like uh, you might say the, the 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 ways in which the metaphysical view of people actually does affect their lived life. You might say in a kind of a concrete and negative way. But as far as uh, providing a kind of a concrete set concrete set of beliefs for what people believe, that's just, that's for them to do. You might say on the basis of their religion. What I would argue is that they should know getting into it that if they're serious, if they're going to think seriously about it, sooner or later they're going to run into the scientific conception, the modern scientific conception of things, and that this sort of, not, not as a question of social relations or of, uh, or of, uh, uh, of uh, power relations, but just at the level of logic, there's going to, they're going to come to a kind of a logical contradiction between the, the metaphysical background of, uh, of the mechanistic, mathematical worldview and the worldview that they're trying to have. And that's a dissonance, and that can have an effect on a person's life, on their ethics, on the way that they live. Does that sort of, I know it's not a full answer, but I think it's a way of how do you begin to have an answer. Yes? Um, is that as different as, um, well, I realize that there are groups of people who, who do have similarities. Is that as different as, as the way one individual thinks from another? Isn't that sort of dependent on the individual, and how would you, would you assume that, um, I mean, I make the assumption at least that most women, or from a feminist point of view, that actually people do live, do think and live differently. I mean, I do think it, it, it varies from individual to individual, but I also think that from a woman's point of view, and it's also experiential. And, um, and women have children. There are a variety of experiential things. Um, men go to war more <laughs> I mean, there are certain experiential things that lead people in the direction that they do. But I, I think it's as different as, as individuals are that in, in answering that. But I also think that women do, that, you know, you might want to think that Women do things no, I think I think that's I, I mean I, I think that there are, there's that difference and there are many other kinds of differences besides that. I mean, when you just from culture to culture and you know between genders. I mean, I there, I think part of what I was trying to say is that what what I think one should avoid, and I think sometimes you get is the idea that well look, I mean you, you get this sometimes from the new atheists. Well, if you're a religious believer, that you're somehow going to take the metaphysical teachings of your religion and you're going to sort of in a mechanical fashion, take those propositions and enact them in your life in a logical and necessary way. I mean, we know that this almost never happens. We know that that's not how we, that human beings don't relate to their ultimate questions in that way. Uh, there's all sorts of varieties between that. Some, of the, some people take it more seriously. Some people take it, uh, the effect is felt in a kind of a distance way. And some people don't even think about these questions. It's a very complicated uh, and, and multifaceted thing. But, but at the level of broad human collectivities, if, I would argue that if you have a if you have a collectivity of human beings who view the world of nature as a giant machine, and then you have another broad collectivity of human beings who view the world of nature as let's say the you know vestiges of God populated by angels containing purpose, it's hard to imagine that the moral and uh, you might say practical decisions that they take in relation to the world of nature aren't going to be at least a little bit different, right? I think that the metaphysical background has some kind of causative effect, not easy to tease out, not always the same with everyone, not easy to kind of give the anatomy for it. But it's hard to imagine that it doesn't have a very important effect, actually. That doesn't mean that it erases 
like the, the fact that, a, for example, as you said, that a woman might uh, interact differently than a man would on, on average. I mean, you could reverse that as well. Um, but uh, does that, I mean, am I addressing what you're thinking yes, of? Um, I think you address the, the difference between individual and the communal, that if you bring it up in the communal level, it does have an effect. Maybe if we get more questions. All right, sure. Uh, just to make sure I understood you correctly, you said that uh, at a certain logical point of view, uh, the mathematical conceptions of the cosmos and perhaps the religious metaphysics to, to somewhere come into a, a point of contention with one another. Yeah. Uh, how would you respond to someone like Keith Ward uh, out at Oxford who seems to think that uh, with quantum physics, quantum mechanics, it, ac it actually reopens the door into religious uh, metaphysics and reinterpreting the, the universe. Because he seems to think that the, the new quantum physics actually leads back into... It, it, in a way, uh, I, I don't know his, his particular um, views on this thing, but that's a, it's a big field and there's a lot of, not only <coughs> there's religious thinkers, philosophers, and also physicists themselves who have tried to see these kinds of openings. Um, the way in which it does, it, I kind of hinted at very quickly at the, at the end of my talk, is that, you know, you had this, um, you might say the pre-modern conception of the cosmos before any of this kind of mechanical, mathematical uh, view really took hold. Uh, the, as I, I tried to stress, the, me the mechanistic philosophy was even more demanding in terms of, than what we usually consider, right? If I say there's forces and fields and particles, nobody ever even shrugs at it. But this was outrageous to people like Descartes and Galileo. They wanted to, they wanted there to be little gears and levers and so forth and so on, all the way down, right? Except for human souls. Um, and so that picture of the world, of course, if you think about it logically, completely banishes anything non-mechanical. There's just, there's no room for it there. I mean, it led to the deistic conception of God and completely removed from the cosmos, kind of winding up the clock and letting it go. Uh, and Newtonian mechanics was not even a, a result of that, but it was a result of mathematizing relations between, let's say, the planets and so forth, and so giving it a mathematical form, but no mechanical cause, right? Like, for example, how do you explain the tides mechanically, right? That was, a, that was considered to be a massive failure of the mechanical philosophy. But you kind of carried on with this classical, uh, you might say, sort of conception of the world. Then quantum mechanics comes along, and it uh, does more than one thing. First, what it does is it, it, it kind of, um, it completely does away with the mechanical way of looking at things. Because what it shows is that no matter how far you penetrate down into what we call matter, right, into, into what we call bodies, right, all you find is mathematical form, right? There are no little corpuscles or levers or these kinds of things like that, really, right? And the physicists are quite clear about that. They're all, all you ever find when you kind of penetrate down are these kind of mathematical forms. Um, and so, if you just pause right there and you look back and you ask yourself, well, wait a minute, a, a certain conception of the world destroyed the pre-modern conception of the world that was, in a sense, the, the, the sacred conception of the world. But now you have a conception of, of physics which has now come along and destroyed that conception. That itself should give people pause and say, wait a minute, maybe you know the, this entire enterprise is kind of taking you know sort of you know steps a little too many steps out away from you know sure footing, you might say. Uh, but then there are further questions having to do with um, uh, what's called state vector collapse, uh, this notion that somehow, you know, uh, particles are, uh, uh, don't have a kind of a determinate place until you measure them, uh, that things can be in more than one place at one time. And different physicists, 
I mean, I, I may be going too far afield here, but different physicists have tried to give different accounts for like what might be going on here. Wolfgang Smith, who was a traditional Catholic thinker, gave an account and said, look, when, wh what happens at, um, when you measure an electron and it goes from this kind of cloud state or this kind of superposition to a kind of one, kind of a, a, a point where you can measure it, is, is he says you're, you're picking up this move from a kind of Aristotelian potential to actuality. Right, you're picking up, to use his words, you're picking up the act of God. And now that's one interpretation. I mean, you would have to get into the argument to kind of lead up. Another one is by a fellow called uh, David Bohm, who's a physicist. Actually, Wolfgang Swift was a serious mathematician. Then there's David Bohm, who's a physicist, who said that the, the quantum phenomena that seem so strange to us are some, uh, somehow appear that way because they imply a deeper level of reality, right, beyond what we usually think of as being the physical. So, for example, you had this notion of a particle with a kind of a wave that kind of carried it along. And that wave belonged to a different order of reality. It didn't have any physical effects. And it, we, he, had, he had this idea of what he called the implicate order. Right? We live in the explicate order, but there's this implicate order, uh, which he saw as being, I mean, way out of the idea of the mechanistic kind of mechanical. I mean, it was still mathematical, but it implied higher levels of reality. It implied determinism as well. Yeah, and it implied determinism, right, from this point of view. Now, that's, these are all things that are disputed in one, in one form or another. And, you know, my own view is that, I mean, there's, none of this has been sorted out properly, you might say. I mean, it's, it's all still kind of a, a bustling kind of activity, and there's, you know, there's still so many open questions in physics that that's also something to be kept in mind. I mean, I think it's, you know, the fact that most of the matter in the world, we don't even know what it is, so we just call it dark. That's kind of a gaping hole, you know what I mean? That should give us a little bit of modesty when it comes to our cosmological claims, for example. But yeah, quantum mechanics has some of those openings precisely because it undoes, in many important ways, more than one important way, the mechanical picture that undid the, the traditional cosmos. That's, in a sense, why it's important. But as to the, what, what the answer is, was Bohm right, is Smith right, or are they both wrong, or you know, is, this, is the mainstream interpretation right? It's, it's, I don't have time to. <laughs> Thank you. Should I pick, or should you? My experience as a uh, uh, practicing uh, scientist uh, was that um, uh, was that uh, outsiders would, would uh, attach the label of reductionists to scientists as sort of a straw man. Uh, that it, it doesn't really uh, it it applies uh, to scientists if if reduction if making reductions in your scientific explorations uh, give rise to new hypotheses and, th and it generates theories and so forth. That is, as if it's useful. Yeah. Uh, but uh, you go. You also have integrative science as well that goes the other direction if it's useful. So today we have we have systems biology, uh, which uh, deals uh, much deals with uh, much more complex structures. Evolutionary biology always has had a strong uh, 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 element of non-reduction of, of holistic thinking in it, um, and uh, ecology. Uh, and environmental science. These are not typically thought of as reductionist uh, uh, ways of approaching. Um, uh, so that's one thing I would say. Uh, I mean, I, I, I know it seems to some extent you stopped with uh, Descartes and Newton, but I mean, uh, science continued on. Of course. Um, uh, in terms of the environment, uh, environmentalism, which was a major point in your talk, so I'd like to, I have a lot of things I could talk about others, but. Um, uh, again, it seems to me that uh, uh, from what, what I read and what I uh, hear, uh, the people who are um, uh, 
uh, most concerned about the environment, uh, on average, are scientists. Uh, they're the ones who have seen seen the potential for disaster, um, and this is not uh, this is not, again not reductionist thinking. Uh, it's very large scale thinking. Uh, I uh, uh, will ad uh, acknowledge that um, that uh, there may be some of their um, underlying emotions play a role in this. Uh, maybe that relates somehow to, to their metaphysical views. It's not clear that it's necessary that they enunciate these metaphysical views, uh, it seems to me. Uh, but um, um, uh, they are thinking, I think, of the world as a complete system. As something like what David Baum was talking about as a physicist, but as, uh, but as a biologist, uh, they think about living systems or, or life systems. Uh, again, not, uh, not reductionist. I, uh, it is a metaphysical leap to talk about such a complete system. Uh, it's beyond one's experience. And it's not just that it's uh, not known at the time, but that it is truly unknowable. And yet they're still, they're still talking about it. I wouldn't fault them for, say, for, uh, for making these leaps because this is what scientists need to do in order to, uh, in order to be imaginative and also to be able to relate to the public. Um, um, they've been productive in what they're doing. They're offering solutions. And I haven't seen theologians uh, offering major solutions. And I haven't seen uh, Christianity in particular showing a major concern for the environment for millennia. And yet it's scientists over the, over the generations who have. Yes, scientists are just human beings. And there's a lot of bad ones, but there's, there's some good ones too. Uh, but it seems to me good things are happening within science in a way that it hasn't happened within Christianity. I won't, I, I don't, can't go beyond that. Well, uh, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of important things that you, yeah. that you brought up there. Uh, what, what I would say is that I, I, I distinguish personally between um, uh, the, the uh, you might say, the subjective approach of a scientist or the method of a scientist in approaching their field and what, what I have a very kind of narrow conception of what I mean when I say metaphysics. What I mean by metaphysics is how, if you sit down to systematically describe and address questions of cause and effect, what does the world actually consist in, uh, you know, what uh, is the relationship between knowledge and the object of knowledge, these kind of very core root questions. That's not always the same as some, I think, some of the... Um, uh, approaches towards the do, uh, towards science that you mentioned. So, for example, I'm I'm very aware that when biologists uh, carry out their work, they're not operating consciously or even necessarily at, at any other level with this idea that somehow they're they're setting about to be able to explain everything as a way in the sense that you have Legos and then these kind of things build up into a whole system and it's all in a very straightforward and easy way reducible to some kind of uh, you might say lower level and that. Indeed, scientists. Yeah, again, I, I think uh, scientists do not assume that things like consciousness are reducible. It may be ontologically no, no, not all, you, no, you, you, Again, it, I would have to beg to differ because there and are scientists in general. Are there are scientists who do. And well, I, that's, that's the point. They're human beings. Some they are, some they're not. There is no blanket statement Sorry. you can make about modern science. Professor Dugley, so there, so there seems to be an address of what scientists think sometimes to themselves of the modern science as, as an entity. No, see, I, I distinguish, I mean, I, when you say science, there's a difference between the scientific community, there's a, there's a system of methods, there's also, you might say, a kind of uh, a received set of beliefs about the way that the world is. These all go under the label of science. So if I were to say that modern, a modern reductionist worldview leads to certain kinds of effects, 
That doesn't mean that I think all scientists uh, abide by that worldview in a kind of a daily way and that they're the ones causing the harm. You know, you have to make a separation between the domain of ideas, the domain of, let's say, institutional uh, relationships, of power, uh, and one should definitely not confuse those things. But I think at a fundamental level, there's, there's a very important difference between approaching your subject matter as if it were something versus what you what you are convinced that the thing actually is. So I, as a, as a believer, let's say a religious believer, I can approach the world of nature and study it as, as at the level of quantity. When I show up to work and I do, I do my work, I can treat the world and only study the quantitative aspects of it. But that's a lot different than then saying that it is only quantitative. Just, just to use a kind of very limited example. Evolutionary biologists, a lot of them are not quantitative. Natural historians are not quantitative. You can't make a blanket statement about, about what no, science is. It's not a blanket statement, it's an example. That's, so, that's one example. Just very briefly, so just very quickly, what, what I'm not trying to, I, I tried my best not to make blanket statements, and I was trying to make a very strong case that in a sense you can't just reduce people to their beliefs, but that beliefs can, cannot also be removed from the picture. And I think we also do have to be honest with what the prevailing uh, belief, uh, beliefs about the way that the world operates is, and I would agree with you, by the way, it, it, ironically, it is it, usually the case that scientists are the ones who are the most sophisticated and savvy when it comes to the limits of their own knowledge. And it's usually the popularizers of science who are making the, the grand claims that tend to do, that tend to make the most kind of damage. Now, that doesn't change the fact that these claims are being made, that they're important, and that there are also some professional scientists who are, who are in a sense, um, supporting that. But I don't, I, it's not a simple picture, I agree with you. There's no, way, there's no way to sit and with some grand theory fault individual people. You have to take everything on its, uh, uh, as an individual. I'd also, one, one last thing is, well, not a physicist, but physicists have standard models. They have particles that they've identified. I mean, you can, you can argue about what a particle means, yeah. but it's not as though they don't accept particles. You, you, were, you were incorrect on that. Though. I would beg to differ on that particular For the sake of diversity in the conversation, would we go, so, one and then two, and then we'll have One and then two, that's right. All right then. Now, I just want to get to the basic theme of your uh, lecture, because your lecture is on ecology, right? And we recognize, and one reason many of us are here, is that we are facing the ecological crisis. And as I've understood it, I have a bit of perplexity because it seems to me you're telling, you've been telling us that there is a kind of disparity, disparity and irreconcilable incommunication between different worldviews of different religions, and in particular between the religious worldview and the secular, atheistic, whatever you want to call it. Given the fact that we have to communicate to figure out what to do about the crisis that we're in, what is the language we're going to adopt? How are we going to discuss it? I mean, you could use it scientific, for example, but I don't think you think that's adequate. So what is the language that, and how do we go about developing and formulating a language that finds us and enables us to communicate to find a solution? You know, the, the um, evangelicals and the scientists got together about 10, 10 15 years ago. They published books together trying to find a common way. So, I wonder, from your perspective, uh, your non-Christian perspective, what is the solution? Um, I'm not so sure that it, it, we have to, it's contingent upon finding a, a common language. I'm, and maybe I'm not sure what you mean by a, by a common language. There are common interests. I mean, there's no reason why, uh, I mean, for example, religious people and uh, non-religious people can't agree that something, for example, needs to be done about, you know, you know poisoning of uh, the, the environment and 
climate change. It's just that there's some overlap that's already there. It's not as though they're just in completely different universes and they can't talk to each other at all on any kind of basis. What I'm saying is that um, the argument that, that, for example, Nasser was making and that I find persuasive is that um, uh, if, uh, there has to be an engagement at the level of ideas. If one side says, we're right, your ideas about the way the world works are kind of silly and superstitious and fairy tale, uh, well, there's never going to be any kind of dialogue between them. And you can only have a conversation at the level of, well, what should we do about X, Y, or Z problem concretely? But my contention is that there has to be some kind of engagement at the intellectual level, because people are influenced by their worldviews. People act in relation to the, to the world of nature. They act in relation to other human beings on the basis of the way that they think about other human beings. You know, and um, it's not always clear what that uh, relationship is, but I, th I think there's definitely a relationship between those things. And so for one side to say, you know, we get to say what the truth is about the world of nature, and if you want to come to us with your religious ethics and your kind of sentimental view about like how we should care about animals and things, that's fine. But don't ever try to talk about what the truth happens to be. That is not going to go anywhere. So I mean, I don't know what common language. But you're sort of denigrating the scientific perspective when you say that. But what about the other? No, I'm not denigrating. For the religious person to say, "Don't come to me with your scientific." No, no, I'm not denigrating. I'm not denigrating. I don't. No, because I don't think that I don't completely. I don't denigrate modern science. So all I'm saying is that we need to find a common language. I think metaphysics, from from a certain point of view, I think I think both sides taking seriously the discipline of metaphysics and the exploration of these questions rationally might be a start. And on both sides, you have kind of a denigration of what I mean by metaphysics is in the Western traditions, especially in the English-speaking world, people think that there's no such thing as metaphysics anymore. You know, they, they talk about how like, all oh, these are just meaningless propositions. You know, you can't talk about anything except what modern science speaks about and empirically and so forth and so on. And when you start trying to talk about ultimate causes or the ultimate nature of things, people sort of laugh at you and think that you're just kind of doing some silly imaginary nonsense that's literally without sense. This is a phrase you hear a lot. It's literally meaningless, so why even talk about it? And for different reasons, you have religious people who don't want to engage at that level either. They want to engage in politics, they want to engage in uh, you know, uh, you know, activism of, of different kinds. And few people are engaging in a kind of a serious way in these kind of ultimate questions and really probing the deep questions. I think that could be a start. Evolutionary biologists talk about ultimate causes all question. the time. Could I have the second question? Yes. I was just wondering, kind of to turn full circle, mm. and maybe retouch on why we don't make uh, kind of a connection with ecology from the scientific worldview. Um, why can an electron not be an object of worship, for example? What is an electron? Well, what is an angel? Oh, that's a bit, see, you see you sort of have kind of stumbled upon the similarity. They're both, from a certain point of view, um, ways in which we are dealing with the world see invisible entities. An electron is an invisible entity that we perceive, but that we extrapolate in a sense on the basis of a strictly quantitative formalism, right? the formalism provided to us by, the, by, by quantum mechanics. An angel is in a sense an invisible entity that we see, or that, or that I should say that we believe is there, or that we kind of sense or have a feeling is there, not on the basis of a quantitative formalism, but on the basis of a different set of assumptions about the way the world works. Perhaps you feel it morally, or you feel it spiritually. You have a kind of an intuition about it in a different kind of way. It's not dependent upon um, a mathematical formalism, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's not real. I mean, the, the, the fundamental question at the root of that is, why are only mathematically derived invisible entities real, 
whereas other invisible entities that we think might be there can never be real? That, I think, is an interesting question. Yeah, but I'm not asking about the reality. I'm asking about, you see, the way professional scientists work is they move from one conception to the next. This is the way we, the yeah. sort of machine of science works. So right. as soon as we, we invent something, we immediately put that aside because our job is always to do something new, right? So we never dwell. We never dwell to the point on some conception to, to make it a, an object of worship. That has to, the, the idea of that coming into being, the, the idea of, say, an electron being an object of worship, has to come from someone else other than the professional researcher. I may, I may not be following your point, but I, I think I, I might disagree with, with one of your premises, which is that science, as it, will, as it were, just kind of rolls along from one discovery to the next. There are principles in science. There are certain constants that you cannot violate. I mean, you cannot, for example, violate the notion that reality, uh, at, at the, as for example, in physics, in physics, it, reality has to be expressed quantitatively. It can't be just impressionistic or intuitive. I mean, it has to be able to be expressed in a certain rigorous quantitative formalism, right? You have to believe that there, for example, you have to have certain metaphysical assumptions that, for example, there is a world. There is a thing as cause and effect, right? There is a, such a thing as time. There is such a thing as space. There are definitely many constants that simply don't change, right? I, I think scientists would say so. I think there's just certain things that are non-negotiable and not subject to change. It's those assumptions, right? It's those constants that are the domain of what I'm of, of metaphysics, properly speaking. That's the domain that I was primarily interested in today. Not so much in, let's say, what, what do practicing scientists do? And, by the way, I, my contention is—I mean, this is not really something I dealt with—is that what practicing scientists do in the lab, or you know, so forth and so on, doesn't often have much to do with the kind of the metaphysical ideas that I'm talking about. They're just kind of doing their work, you know. They're kind of they're, they're kind of immersed in the work that they're doing, and you know they're not uh, they're not enacting some kind of uh, generalized view of things that has to necessarily flow into their work. They're being creative. They're being uh, you know they're being spontaneous. They're being there's all sorts of things that come. To, I don't think it's a I don't think it's a, de uh, a deterministic picture in the sense that like your background ideas somehow determine everything that you're going to do in the foreground. I explicitly, I explicitly said the opposite. Is that? Yeah, I, I just wanted to get to the point, but I'll stop now. Um, that maybe I missed your question. If you could turn an electron into an object of worship, then maybe one could have a more caring and inclusive view of the environment and ecology. And you, you see what I mean? Well, like, as speaking as a Muslim, you have to you still have to tell me. Well, what is it about an electron that makes it worthy of being worshipped? That's the <laughs> ultimate question. I can't just say, well, I'm going to worship that thing just because it's something I feel like doing. There has to be something in it that's that, that makes me worship it, that makes me adore it. Just like you can't just ask me to love some random person. There has to be something about that person that I love. That, that would be my answer. Okay. Uh, cool. oh. um, first of all, thank you for your speech. I really enjoy your ideas. My question is, in your in your metaphysical view, um, how does scientific laws fit in? Are they like a reflection of, of God's I'm intelligence? sorry, I just the, how does how do these scientific laws fit into laws? the metaphysical view? Are they, are they like a reflection of God's intelligence? Like what would they be for, for your metaphysical perspective? Uh, so the question is like what is a law or what is a natural scientific, law? No, I guess how do, how do uh, scientific laws or things that, that, that science can observe and explain and predict, like how do those fit into the larger picture of, of metaphysics? Oh, for me personally, of course, uh, uh, you know, the regularity of the cosmos, the fact that it expresses habits and, uh, uh, and uh, repetition and, and predictability 
these are undeniable and extremely profound uh, aspects of the cosmos. My, the only answer I would give to that is simply that you can study those uh, and you can try to gain knowledge of what those are and how give a mathematical formalism to the way that objects in the world relate to each other. But from my point of view, so long as you then don't make then the philosophical leap that that explains everything. Right? You can see those, what you're calling scientific laws, I, I wouldn't use that phrase, but what you, these, these kind of scientific laws as a, uh, an aspect of reality. Right? One aspect of reality, a dimension of reality, but it doesn't exhaust everything that reality is. It's, it's valid and necessary and illuminating on its own level it doesn't explain every important question. That's how I think about that. If we have no more new questions, I'll actually pose one question myself, which would include something, that, something that's at the premise of all of this, uh, as it seems to me. Why is it that in the pre-modern context, where there was a, a sacred view of nature, and uh, with religious worldviews, did the environmental crisis never come about? Well, it does in the modern context. In, in what we allude to ability, the, the, the Chinese civilization having dynamite, yeah, having, having gunpowder, sorry, but using it for fireworks as opposed to dynamite, speed, things like that. What would you say? You know, I, I find Nasser's view convincing and persuasive, you know, and, and uh, but his position is that there is a necessary connection between the intellectual and spiritual view of the collectivity and the way that they relate to the world of nature. Um, I'll admit that it's not, a, it's not an ironclad case. It's not, you, you can't show with the kind of uh, an absolute deductive certainty that, for example, a traditional civilization wouldn't have eventually, let's say, start to destroy the environment. But he's making the case that, look, it doesn't seem to have happened. Right? It seems to have been that this, this particular civilization with this particular view of nature is the one that really brought about these catastrophes and those who imitated them. And so that's, from a certain point of view, it's not a, it's not a metaphysical argument, it's more of a historical argument. It's kind of like, can you actually make the case that uh, you know, this happened here as, a, as opposed to happening there? But if you, if you want to then explore that a little bit further, I think, it's, I think it's because our views do influence the way that we relate to the world of nature. What we think another human being is and what the world of nature is uh, has, a, you know, maybe not immediately, maybe not today, right, not in the way that I look at you, but in the, the pattern of my entire life, in the pattern of the entire life of the civilization and of a culture. You know, um, I mean, not to give kind of gruesome examples, but, you know, I mean, some of these, some of these people in the, in the, uh, who were subscribers to the mechanical philosophy would do vivisection without any anesthetic. You know, Descartes would, would cut open puppy uh, dogs and rabbits and stick his finger into their heart because he thought that they were just robots, essentially. He wouldn't call them robots, he would say automata. You know, sometimes your view of things affects how you're going to interact with the thing. I mean, that, now you can make an argument that that's, that didn't have anything to do with Descartes' worldview. I'd say, well, maybe it does. You know, maybe these worldviews, you know, kind of set the bounds for what we consider to be what's appropriate and what's inappropriate. You know, we all have, we all have limits. You might say civilizations have limits. You just, it's like, no, no matter what benefit, no matter what material benefit comes, we are not going to do this. We're just, we're just saying no. So, you know, for example, in our in our society today, slavery. Slavery is a possibility, right? You could, you could do it, it would bring economic benefit. It certainly brought a lot of economic benefit in the 19th century, but we just say no, it's just, it's just no. No matter what kind of benefit comes, we will never do this. And I think for traditional cultures, you could sort of make an argument that there was certain just plain no, we're not going to do that. This is not the direction that we're gonna go in, not because
because of any cost-benefit analysis, but because of what they consider to be sacred. You know, and it's, it's hard, you know, I'm not saying it's a, it's a kind of a mathematically ironclad argument, but it, that, that seems to be the direction. Thank you very much. For Thank you very much for having me.